Welcome to the Jesus the Game Changer podcast from Olive Tree Media, hosted by Carl Fays. In today's podcast, researcher Simon Wenham talks about what life was like in the Victorian England period and highlights some of the game changers, such as Florence Nightingale, who strove to follow Jesus during that time. Simon, so you did a lot of study about uh, the Victorian England period. When was that, by the, by the way? When was it? Uh, 1837 to 1901. Okay, so in that period of time, what was life like if you were poor? Say, for instance, in the healthcare system. Sure. Uh, it was quite a mixed picture, depended uh, where you lived. Uh, but one of the striking features of the 19th century is that in the early period, at least, uh, standards of living were lower than they had been 100 years earlier. And that's quite staggering if you think yeah, of technological yeah. change at that time. And, and actually, the technological change was part of the problem because uh, the, the society was becoming more industrialised and people were flocking to the cities for jobs and they were often living in cramped, squalid conditions and diseases were rife in, those kind of, in that kind of environment. So if you spread people out in farms and you know, cottages, etc., it wasn't yeah. so bad, but you put them all in the one place, yes. you get bad health outcomes. Absolutely. And, and also because so many people are moving in at, at quite fast pace, there were lots of quick house building and not necessarily of the best standards. So you could have drafty housing and you've got to bear in mind you've got smoky conditions and not very good hygiene. So yes, very good for spreading disease, unfortunately. What sort of disease? Uh, there's absolutely loads at this time. And so you would have, for example, typhus, you have typhoid, cholera comes in later, you have scarlet fever. Influenza itself was very dangerous at the time, and there are many others as well. So um, yes, they, they could be very dangerous. Some of them we now obviously have uh, prevention for, but actually at the time they could be devastating in the population. I don't know any, almost any of those, but I'm sure none of them are very good for you. <laughs> no, no. And the problem is if you, uh, if you come from a poor background, you're probably malnourished and your body just doesn't have very strong defences. So diseases could spread quite quickly and, and people could succumb to what we would now consider fairly minor uh, conditions, but of course we know even today in the developing world some of these diseases can be devastating if they're not treated and in poor uh, societies particularly. If you, if you weren't well off at that time, what were your healthcare options? Uh, it depended where you lived, uh, but uh, if you were utterly destitute you would be taken in uh, into a workhouse by the poor law authorities, uh, you were kept there, they wouldn't let you out, and uh, they would give you rudimentary healthcare, um, if you were lucky, there might be a voluntary hospital nearby and they were charitable institutions uh, where you could be referred. Uh, but ultimately, most people relied on uh, good fortune, a bit of ingenuity to survive and the goodwill of others. So that might be charitable institutions or um, maybe a benign employer, if you were lucky, might pay for your medical bills. But sadly, there weren't many options at this time. There was no universal health care. We'll come back to that. Um, let me just ask you, so between the age of 5 to 15, or even younger than that, sure. what, what were your, your chances of survival? Yeah, I mean, it was very hard conditions at that time. So for a start, if you were uh, from a poor background, at least, uh, you might be lucky to make it to childhood in the first place. So. Uh, infant mortality rates were very, very high, particularly in urban areas. Uh, it could be as high as one in every two children of wow. the poorest sections of society uh, would die before they were two. And it could be higher than that still, so one and a half sometimes in every two. Uh, so uh, unfortunately, your life chances are quite low. If you then make it through uh, it to childhood, you would have to contribute to the family purse at quite an early age, often around 10 years old, sometimes earlier, sometimes a bit later. 
And other, the other thing to bear in mind is that you were often working in what we would now consider to be environments that were quite dangerous. Lots of the jobs at this time uh, had considerable what we call occupational hazards in a day in the time before you had the likes of health and safety regulation. So although those were coming in 1830s and 1840s, many working environments were very dangerous and often children were used uh, in some of the hardest roles. They were the lowest paid staff and they would often be uh, sent to do some of the jobs that adults couldn't do. What which, would they be? What would those jobs yeah, be? Yeah, there were all kinds of different things that, that they could do depending where they were, but you had obviously chimney sweeps as a classic one because they were smaller, they could get up uh, chimneys, but of course uh, falling down or getting stuck was an occupational hazard. Uh, in factories, you often had uh, children working around machinery underneath, sort of keeping them clear. Uh, but of course, it's very dangerous working uh, near moving machinery. And then in agricultural setting, often that you had them just doing things like scaring birds in fields, but often you'd be working on your own in very cold conditions. And then in mines as well, they were often used just for doing things like opening doors and closing them in these sort of dark conditions. So quite, uh, quite dangerous conditions and scary if you think of at the age that some of these children so were. So they worked pretty much six days a week, didn't they? Yes, that's right, yeah. So they were, by modern standards, working very long hours. And again, that's another feature of your, your, your own health is that you will often be working long hours in difficult conditions. And that took a toll on your health often. You, you mentioned before that there were, there were groups that were helping. Uh, at what point did the church become involved and how was the church involved at that period? Uh, it depends what you count. Um, so we, we had the poor law system operating for centuries. So that was parish-based help for the poor. So you would have almsgiving in the, the Middle Ages, for example, and that later on became a more formal process where you could have out relief, which was uh, relief given to people in their own homes, as well as uh, what, uh, it, within workhouses sometimes, which is when people are taken in and looked after uh, by the community. So the church has always been at the forefront of, of caring for the sick and needy, uh, but in the Victorian period, you get sort of a more formalizing of that process, as well as also a lot of charitable activity going on. It's actually one of the uh, major features of the Victorian period is the amount of philanthropy that's going on by people. And, and a lot of that is, is motivated by religion and evangelicals, for example, are very very active in lots of areas of life at this time. Do you know what caused them to be so active, the evangelicals? Yeah, they, um, I mean, it was basically they, they had a, a strong onus on sin and also personal responsibility for the Lord. And they were very concerned about um, both saving souls and the moral behavior of people. So um, reforming both both the character and, and saving souls in the process. So. Uh, and a lot of them had a very strong onus on character and hard work uh, and personal responsibility as well, so towards the, the wider community. So lots and lots of them, I mean, they turn up everywhere in, in Victorian philanthropy, and a lot of them would have had strong religious motivations for what they were doing. Uh, this is a difficult question, uh, but let me ask you, is, it, is, it, is there a way of looking at the Victorian era and going, what would it have been like if you took all that church activity out of something <laughs> like healthcare, is that possible to even comment on? Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of these questions that we like to ask is actually what would have happened, but it's actually very difficult mm. to, yeah. to say that, partly because a lot of healthcare 
uh, improvements came along, they were reactive. So when you get uh, outbreaks of cholera or different diseases, then often someone has to act in a certain way. So it's actually difficult to say. But I mean, there's no doubt that uh, religiously motivated people were at the forefront of huge numbers of area, areas, different areas of philanthropy at this time. Um, so, uh, yeah, so without them, you would certainly have struggled. And, and there's, a, there's a question mark as to how much people would have cared for others if you got rid of those ideas that, that motivated them in the first place. Uh, in, in the same area of healthcare, but looking at, say, one of the characters of the last uh, couple of hundred years, um, Florence Nightingale, tell us about her. Sure. Uh, well, she was uh, undoubtedly one of the most intriguing figures of this era. Uh, and this is actually one of the difficulties with studying her because there's so much legend surrounding her story that it's, it's sometimes difficult to separate fact and fiction. Uh, but she's a very interesting figure. So she was highly educated. She came from a very wealthy background. Um, but uh, the problem for her is that she had a very strong calling to helping the sick, but she lived in an age when it was considered unacceptable for, for a woman of her stature to be in that kind of profession. Uh, at this time, uh, if you worked as a nurse, that you would have to be working class. That is what, uh, what you were uh, if you were going to be in those kinds of profession. And so she actually had quite a long battle with her own family to try to let her be used uh, in, in what she considered to be her calling. And she eventually took an unpaid role uh, running a, essentially an elderly people's home for the sick in London. And she actually did such a good job that the British government uh, actually asked her to run a hospital uh, near Istanbul during the Crimean War. And what was interesting about that is they, um, there was actually a public outcry about the conditions there. And so uh, the government had to act and they thought she would be the best person to do it. But as a result, she actually arrived with already uh, the public eye looking to see what was going on there. And, and she had an incredible impact in improving the conditions for the soldiers. So uh, lots of people were dying from infection at that time. And she worked tirelessly in, often against quite a difficult bureaucracy of the British Army to improve things. And she just became a national heroine. She was hugely popular in Britain. And one of the reasons for that as well is that she worked tirelessly uh, to the detriment of her own uh, health. So she was quite sick in the process. And many people pointed out that she was uh, this angelic figure who was helping the British soldiers. And in, in doing so, actually nearly ended, dying her, ended up dying herself. So, so she's uh, in, uh, in the Crimean War and, and dealing with dying wounded soldiers. It's a yeah. very hands-on kind of role yeah. for somebody of her stature in the society. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the slightly unfortunate things is we think of her as a, just a nurse. And actually, she was running the whole hospital, and she was in charge of the sort of purveying department of trying to get lots of different uh, items for her hospital. One thing she worked on is she got a boiler um, installed to, to clean people's clothes so that the soldiers could have clean clothes, as many of them were literally uh, in the same outfits that they were, had fought in. And of course, that was not good for infection if you're wounded. Um, so she, she did a huge amount um, for that. And, and also, uh, she actually challenged people's assumptions of what uh, a woman could do at this, at this time, or, or a woman of her stature, at least. There's, there's an interesting few pieces in that, isn't there? Like her, she was obviously brilliant, um, very committed, um, a, a keen mind, yeah. and, and that, that kind of character trait that's, that you couldn't say no to. Yes, yeah, and she, she was a very strong character, so this is one 
uh, feature of her. And actually, she exerted a lot of her influence through letter writing. So uh, the second part of her life, a lot of it was uh, when she was quite ill and wasn't able to take as an active part as she might want to have done. But she wrote huge numbers of letters encouraging people, and people were also referring their questions to her. Um, one of the unusual things about her legacy is she's often associated with the professionalization of the nursing profession because uh, she helped found, for example, a college of nursing. Um, but actually the colleges weren't that successful in her own lifetime. Um, they had all kinds of problems with them, but um, actually her real impact, historians believe, is that she had a huge impact in improving public health uh, in lots of different ways, and some of them are quite unusual ways. So she, she of course, had an impact in nursing. She wrote a best-selling nursing book. Uh, she was also a very important reference point for advice on disease prevention, sanitation and hygiene. But she did some more unusual things as well. She advised on the design of hospitals, and she also was a pioneer in a lot of statistical analysis for healthcare, the likes of which we take for granted today, but actually she used those to argue her case for different uh, approaches to helping others. So uh, very, very important innovations and slightly different from the sort of image we might have of her of uh, just being involved with nursing. She actually did a lot more. In yeah, terms it's not, of it's not just like a warm-hearted person that turned yes. up and was, it was lovely to people in need. Yes. What was, where was the faith uh, element to her motivation. Yeah, we fortunately, actually, she was very clear about what her motivation was, and she essentially said that she felt that God had called her to ministry. She said this very explicitly. Uh, of course, she was a very uh, well-educated person, so there were lots of different uh, influences on her, including some Christian authors. Uh, she also got to visit various different healthcare providers at the time, including some re religious orders, and that informed her as well. But essentially, she said that she considered uh, charitable acts to be the cornerstone of the Christian faith, and she actually considered uh, this kind of service to be the purest form of devotion that you could do. So she was very clear that this was uh, exactly what her faith was leading her to. And she came from more of a tradition of deed rather than creed. So she wasn't so interested in some of the theological arguments, but was very insistent that she acted out her faith in a way that impacted people and, and helped others. So motivated by faith with her experience and her character essentially revolutionized the medical world in a way. Yes, yeah, I mean, she, I mean, the thing you've got to bear in mind is she was one of the most famous people of her era. So she had all this kind of wider impact but one of the slightly unfortunate things with history is you can't really measure the impact someone like that has. She was uh, just hugely popular amongst the British public and uh, she undoubtedly inspired thousands of people to do similar acts of caring in smaller ways in Britain, but sadly you can't really trace it all to, to uh, her life directly because we don't know exactly uh, how many people were inspired by her other than knowing that she was this household name that uh, was seen as being this sort of angelic lady uh, with the lamp who uh, just had a huge impact on society. Tell us about education. For kids in that era that came from a, um, a background that was poor, what, what was their education options? Again, unfortunately very limited. Uh, there wasn't a great onus put on education for many working class families, and that's partly because they didn't necessarily see the value in it because, uh, of course, it was all about getting a job and surviving, and times uh, were very tough. Um, but essentially you start to get uh, more 
a provision. Again, a lot of it charitable towards educating the poor uh, through the likes of the Sunday School movement and the Ragged School movement, which was connected with the poor law. But ultimately, uh, most education was paid for. So if you couldn't pay any money, uh, then you weren't going to get uh, a, a much education at all. And of course, you couldn't afford to do that if you came from a poor background, uh, nor would you prioritise it if you were very close to the breadline. Now, you mentioned Sunday School, because uh, most of us grew up thinking about Sunday School as what happened on a Sunday morning at yep. church with you know, religious education, sure. etc. Yeah. But Sunday schools, when they first started, tell us about the, the people that kind of first started Sunday schools in the sure. Victorian era. Yes, yeah, we think of Sunday school as being something about perhaps learning about the Bible on a Sunday. But what's unusual about it in terms of the Sunday school movement is that it actually began as a form of educating the poorest sections of society and helping them to read. So essentially it was a literacy project and they were started by a man called Robert Rakes. Uh, he wasn't the very first person to teach children on a Sunday, but he popularized what became the Sunday school movement. And uh, essentially, he was motivated by seeing lots and lots of poor people on the streets on a Sunday. Uh, this was a time then when about 50% of the population would have been under 18. And of course, Sunday was the only day off for many working class people. So the streets would have been teeming with, with young people. And of course, some of them would have been getting up to no good. And of course, you can imagine even today, we, uh, people are concerned about seeing groups of adolescent uh, young children sort of hanging about on the streets. Uh, and so essentially, he and a clergyman got together and they decided to try to do something about this, get them doing something useful and helpful on a Sunday, which was essentially providing them with a basic education. So they uh, initially employed four teachers uh, to basically teach uh, the young people how to read. Right. What, what would it look like when they turned up? Yeah, well, they were initially, I mean, they're very strict institutions, so all kinds of rules associated with them. Uh, you've got to bear in mind that actually quite a lot of the early cohort were quite unruly, uh, but also actually educational establishments at that time were very strict, uh, you know, even your normal school was. But they ran essentially from early morning to mid-afternoon, and you'd be taught in a number of different ways. Uh, the early Sunday schools actually used the Bible uh, to teach from. So you would have actually learnt reading through the Bible, and then you would have also done things like reciting catechisms. You might have learnt through singing hymns, prayer, and of course you then went to church as well, so you gained some instruction there. And then essentially over time, they developed a lot more specialised um, different processes for teaching. So they actually had books to teach you reading rather than just using the Bible. Uh, the Bible incidentally would have been the only book that uh, a lot of people might have had in their home. So it wasn't actually uncommon for working class children, even older children to teach younger children how to read from the Bible at this time. And uh, so over time they, they shifted their focus and Sunday schools became much broader. And then by the end of the Victorian period, you had things like outings and, and a sort of wider curriculum being taught. So the clarity on this is that these kids are basically working six days a week. Yeah. And this is their only opportunity for any sort of education yes. to develop them as people. How large did it get? Yeah, well, th this is, again, what Robert Rakes was very important in doing. So uh, after three years after he launched the Sunday School movement, so in 1783, uh, he published an article in the Gloucester Journal, which was his own uh, newspaper, uh, essentially saying how successful his little project had been, and uh, that was his term for running the Sunday schools. And essentially because of that, it captured a lot of attention from other people uh, around the UK. And by the end of the decade, there were Sunday schools operating in most cities in the UK. 
And then the other second really important feature of that is that groups then got together to form their own societies and movements uh, to share information and uh, encourage each other. But this very much helped in improving standards. People would uh, share details about uh, you know, different ways of teaching, different ways of testing students, you know, different rules and regulations that worked. So you had a Sunday school society in the 1780s, you had a Sunday school movement in the first uh, decade of the 19th century, and uh, they were very, very important. And they also went global, so this became a global phenomena, and you had them operating in North America as well as around the world. Uh, as well as in England. But they, they, by the 1830s, about 20% of the population were educated in Sunday schools, and they were actually one of the main ways in which the working class children were educated. Not the only way, but one of, one of the crucial ways that a lot of them were. And also, uh, Sunday became known as the day that you went to Sunday school. So if you were a child, it was sort of expected that you went to Sunday school. Any idea of what number children would have been in this yeah, period so of time? By the end of the 19th century, we're talking about 16 million children at that time, and that's globally. So quite a lot of that was in North America as well as the UK. So uh, a lot of people are being taught in this way. Uh, so it was a very, very important education initiative, especially if you think initially it was simply uh, a sort of literacy program for the poorest in society. But of course, by that point, it had become much broader and was, was teaching uh, a, a much wider range of um, things. Robert Rakes as a person, um, obviously he's using a church. Uh, he's doing a Sunday school in a church. Yeah. His motivation? Yeah, I mean, he, he's quite an interesting figure. So he was a, a rich businessman. He was a devout, personable. He was involved in some philanthropy. But he wasn't an evangelical, so he wasn't moved by any strong desire to convert the masses or to reform people's behavior. But he, he, in this case, he was simply responding to a need. He saw lots of children out on the streets on a Sunday and thought it was a good idea to help them by providing an education. And also that was connected with obviously finding them something helpful to do on a Sunday. So there were quite strong Sabbatarian principles at that time, which is essentially making sure you were doing the right thing on a Sunday. Mm. They, obviously they died out. Was that because the government took up that role? <laughs> uh, it was, yes. Um, so Sunday schools were important because they were one of a number of initiatives teaching uh, working class children. And there were other initiatives that, that came through and they contributed to changing attitudes to education. And eventually the state decided to start compulsory education in 1870. But what that did, of course, is it removed uh, the need uh, amongst working class communities uh, for Sunday school in terms of just learning literacy. And then Sunday schools become more focused on religious education rather than uh, teaching you to read, for example. And that's, so once that's been removed, um, they, they continue to grow and be influential, but they grew at a slower, a slower rate than the population was growing. And as a result, uh, in other words, a, a smaller proportion of people were attending them. And so they, they slowly reduced in significance as being a sort of core way in which uh, working class children were educated. But they were still very, very important, even into the early 20th century. Well, and even today, they're important, but uh, they no longer have, as, they're not as widely used. Uh, most working class children were sending their children uh, to uh, be educated in this way at a time when not many working class people were able to attend church. And that's one of the crucial features. So actually, even though the adults weren't able to, it was one of those things that was very valued and lots of children uh, would be sent to Sunday school on a Sunday. So Simon, this uh, series is called Jesus the Game Changer. So for you, how do you see Jesus the Game Changer? 
Well, I think from a historical perspective, I think we can quite clearly see that lots and lots of people throughout the ages have been motivated because of Jesus's actions and teaching, uh, particularly in relation to helping the marginalized and the poor. And there's just so many examples of that. And, and of course, many people are quite explicit in their motivations in describing why they've done that or the change that has happened to their own hearts that has led them to want to care for the needy. So that, that's one clear thing you can see from an educational background. Of course, Christianity has put an onus on understanding the Bible. And of course, that has inspired all kinds of educational initiatives throughout history. Of course, the great universities, including Oxford University, where we are here, uh, they were religious institutions initially, and all kinds of uh, ideas come out of those, of course. You had the, the scientific revolution coming out of uh, what was originally religious teaching. Um, and I think it's quite important that we acknowledge some of, some of these features because I think many people today just don't quite understand where some of the ideas we cherish come from. Uh, one very important concept that uh, we have in the Western world is uh, universal equality, uh, egalitarianism in the philosophical sense. And this is the foundation for our human rights, the democratic uh, process, and um, the likes of our freedom of conscience. And actually intellectual historians have say this quite clearly was popularized by Judeo-Christian principles, uh, specifically uh, the Jewish concept of justice and the Christian concept of love. And I think it's just very important that we understand uh, the ramifications of that because many of us today, uh, we just sort of take for granted what's happened in society, but actually Jesus' teaching has had a profound impact, not only in making amazing people do incredible things, but also in shaping the culture that we know and love today, even though we don't necessarily know where it comes from. A final point I would say is I would encourage people not to take my word for it, but actually to take history seriously and look at it for themselves. Uh, you can actually look at communities historically uh, that have become Christian and you can see the impact that it's had, uh, not only within the community, but in the wider society itself. So I would just very much encourage people to look into the history. Of course, Christian history isn't all perfect, but you can say a profound influence on uh, both individuals and the communities uh, which have become Christian. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the radio, video and podcast ministry of Olive Tree Media, visit olivetreemedia.com.au forward slash donate.